I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Microscope. Today's guest is Dr. Jamaica Perry. She is the senior product scientist and the manager of the clinical health team at 23andMe. Thank you for joining us, Jamaica. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to ask the question that we seem to always start with, which is what what is a senior product scientist and manager of clinical health team at 23andMe do? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so the product science team, we're really the team that's behind all of the health-related genetic reports that 23andMe develops. Um, so as you might be aware, there are kind of two different sides to the 23andMe product. So there's our whole ancestry side, um, which is very cool, but I have nothing to do with any of that. Um, my, like what I actually work on is the health arm of the product. And I manage the team that specifically works on all reports that have been authorized by the FDA. Um, these reports currently fall in two different categories, which we call them carrier status and genetic health risk. Um, and the primary job of the product scientist really is to evaluate the scientific evidence that underlies each of our reports. And then we're also the people who actually write all of the genetic reports that we provide to customers. Um, we, we care a lot about making sure that the science behind our reports is really sound and then making sure that we can communicate that science in a way that's understandable and relatable for people who don't necessarily have a scientific background. That's not an easy task. No, it's not. <laughs> um, especially since, I mean, knowing what 23andMe does, you're not writing for people who may be at all science literate, right? I yes. mean, your, your audience is not, you know somewhat science people or science adjacent people. Yeah, we tend to assume, I mean, people who do 23andMe at least have some interest in genetics. So hopefully they have some some awareness of the field of genetics and they're interested in kind of this health space. But, you know, we really do strive to make sure that everything, all the information we present to people is really understandable and is very scientifically sound, but presented in a way that like they can, sorry, I'm trying to think of the best way to say that. <laughs> um, yeah, we try to make sure that the information we say is very scientifically sound, but presented in a way that everybody can understand um, and kind of bring value then to their daily lives through that information. And what kind of information is provided in the report? So a lot. Um, so when we give people their these you know, genetic results, they are provided with some top level information where we're telling them sort of we tend to focus on the variants. So usually we're talking about whether people have variants detected or not detected in a certain gene that's associated with a particular condition. Um, so we'll tell them whether a variant was or wasn't detected, but really the core of the report is actually interpreting that results for somebody. So if somebody is getting a result that says they had no variants detected, we need to interpret that within the overall scope of the science and also taking into account things like their ethnicity. So if the report is, you know, reports on one very well-known variant in a particular your ethnicity, say European, if they have zero variants detected, we can interpret that for them and say, you don't have this variant, chances are pretty low that you would be at risk for having this condition. Um, however, there's some times where we have a set of variants in a report that are only specific for one ethnicity and not others. 
And then that zero variant detected result is much more complex. And we're trying to describe to people that they did not have these variants detected. However, it might not be necessarily as relevant for people of their ethnicity. Um, so that really, you know, our result interpretation hinges on a lot of different factors. And then, of course, there's the people who do have a variant detected. There, a lot of the interpretation depends on what type of report this actually is. So our carrier status reports are very focused on risk to children. So there, these are all autosomal recessive diseases. So it is not expected that a person who has one copy of a variant would actually have any signs of that disease. So we try to get across to them that really the information we want them to know is that if both they and their partner carry a variant, that could mean there's an increased risk of their child having that condition. Our genetic health risk category is a little bit different because there we actually do focus on personal risk. However, none of the variants we report on in that category are deterministic. So there we really try to frame the information around not only the genetic variant that was detected, but also known other factors that can influence either increase or decrease risk of that particular condition. So the explanation is really the crux of all of these genetic reports is getting across to people really what we want them to know within the context of what type of genetic report it is. This seems like, I mean, this seems really, obviously really sophisticated, um, which is of course what people pay for, but, but in your side of this, does the, the science and the sort of health research change often enough that you have to recalibrate what you do and, and what you send out to people? Or are you able to say, okay, with this very, this, you know, this variant in the gene and this, you know, ethnicity, we can say the following thing. And that gets sort of like assigned to people who have those two things. Like how, how much sort of hand manipulation is there? So there is, I guess, in terms of recalibrating, we really are reporting on very well-established variants. So for example, the variant included in our Alzheimer's, our late-onset Alzheimer's report, is the E4 variant in APOE, um, which is a very well-known risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So we're not really reporting on more kind of research-only or speculative variants. Um, we want to make sure that there's very strong scientific evidence behind all of these. That said, we do at, or audit all of our health reports on an annual basis to make sure that the information currently provided in the report is the most up-to-date scientific information. It's really important to us to make sure that we are presenting people with the best scientific information that we can be giving them. Is there certain information that you don't include um, for reasons, for whatever reasons, like um, not confident enough about certain things or that um, people just uh, will tend to misinterpret or, or, or for whatever other reasons? Not really. I think we, you know, in terms of actually reporting on variant and disease relationships, we would never include a variant that we were not 100% confident in. Um, this is not, of course, not only our internal policy, but also this is regulated by the FDA. We do have certain standards for scientific and clinical validity that we need to meet. So there needs to be a certain amount of peer-reviewed published evidence that is available in order for us to include a variant in our product. I think the area where you know, we do the most evaluation is 
for other factors that influence disease risk, um, particularly in disease spaces like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, there's a lot of research going on into, you know, does intellectual activity have an effect on your Alzheimer's disease risk? Or do certain pesticides have an effect on your Parkinson's disease risk? And those are the areas where we have to do the most evaluation of the literature to make sure you know, if we are talking about another factor that we're pretty confident that that other factor is actually associated with increased or decreased risk of that condition. Um, so that's probably the space where we do the most. If there's something that doesn't quite meet our criteria, we would need to throw it out and then potentially evaluate it again in the future. I want to step a little bit out of, of your daily work because I will come back to it. Um, how did you wind up in this position and doing this kind of thing? I, I mean, your background is, is not in genetics, right? It's not 100% in genetics, no. I Genetics has always been sort of a side love of mine. And it's funny because I kind of look back at, you know, I, I sort of see everything looking back to when I was making the decision to go to undergrad. And I remember genetics was actually the area that I wanted to go into. It was very hot at that point. You know, the, there was all of the work around the human genome. And I just thought it was such a cool area. And then when I did go to undergrad, I ended up sort of falling more into the neuroscience and specifically the field of neurodegenerative disease research. But genetics has always been something that I've just loved and has fascinated me. And I think I was really excited to come to 23andMe and actually be able to kind of marry those two interests. I can still work on things and think about these neurodegenerative conditions, but I can also explore a lot more in the genetic space, which has been really fun. Um, can you, um, how did you come to 23andMe then? Yeah. Um, so I feel like as with all of these things, it's one of those convoluted paths that leads you to sort of right where you were supposed to be. Um, I think for me, I've always had like a love of science and learning about science. And then I've also always just had this love of writing and communicating. And I remember at so many points in my life trying to figure out how do I actually combine those two interests and find a job where I can be thinking about science and talking about science and, you know, considering whether like textbook publishing, like these are trying to come up with more traditional fields that would combine those. And I think as I was going through my PhD, you know, I did come to the realization that I was much more interested in working in industry than staying in an academic field. Um, I got the opportunity to work on a clinical trial and kind of do more human subjects research as part of my PhD and realized that I, I was totally okay with stepping away from the lab bench and focusing more on people than really focusing on running ELISA's and Western blots. And I think another big part of that is that while I was doing my PhD, my advisor actually encouraged me to pursue a master's degree in regulatory science as well. And it happened to be that I was pursuing that degree. It was from 2012 to 2014, which was right at the same time that 23andMe was in the news a fair amount because that was when we had received our warning letter from the FDA. And so I actually encountered this company and heard about it and started looking into what the company did. And I just thought it was so interesting. And I really, I really liked the mission of the company. And I thought that it would be a great place where I could come and marry 
you know, my interest in genetics and my interest in regulatory science and my interest in talking about science to people. And when I saw a job opening at that time, they were called content and curation scientists. And it just seemed to be the complete perfect fit of all of the things I loved just in one package. Well, that's convenient. Yeah, you know, it really was. <laughs> Do you have a... Um... A typical day at work or if, if I, we always ask this and no one ever has a typical day. So, so I guess answer that however you want to answer that. Well, no. So, I mean, it's funny because yes, that is of course the hardest question, right? Because there is no typical day. I would say, you know, my typical day has changed over the years. When I first came in and was you know, a product scientist and I really was working on the reports myself as an individual contributor there, my day was much more focused on, you know, I would have a particular report that I was working on and I would be evaluating the scientific research in that area, reading a lot of papers, spending a lot of time on PubMed, a lot of time doing curation. And then once I had done that, actually spending time writing up the genetic report and then working with various teams in the company to really craft the language of the report and make sure that it was scientifically and medically accurate. Now that I've stepped more into a manager role, I you know, still play a big role in evaluating the scientific research behind our reports, but my day-to-day job is much more focused on working with cross-functional teams. Um, so you know, sometimes I'm working with the engineering team on report implementation. Sometimes I'm working with our quality assurance team on documentation behind the report. Sometimes I'm working with our communications and marketing teams trying to figure out launch strategies for reports. So now my day-to-day tends to be a lot of meetings with various people in the company, but I really enjoy sort of being this nexus that brings all these groups together as we develop and release our genetic reports. Um, I want to ask a question about the whole populist genetic movement as a whole. And and yeah. so for backstory, I got really into the ancestry stuff, the like doing the sort of family tree stuff back when I was a kid and I've done a lot of it. And I, so I have, but I haven't done the genetic test and I know plenty of people who have, but it's come back in the news cycle um, in the past year um, because of a lot of criminal cases in which they're using these public source databases, which I know are not yours. I I mean, I know know those are, uh, those are open source databases um, in which, you know, when you put some, somebody else has put their data in and then you can sort of find family and familial connections how do you, when you're working with this company and, and just in general, deal with, one, the, the public opinion and, and perception of the whole process and just how popular it is and, and sort of the, the cultural sort of emphasis or cultural sort of influence it has now? I mean, it certainly is interesting. I would say the I not being on the communications side of things am less impacted kind of by the cultural shift and like cultural attitudes towards genetic testing. Um, but it certainly is interesting as we you know, continue developing reports and thinking about trying to reach greater numbers of people and actually show people sort of the power of our genetic reports. I think one good example recently was the release of our type two diabetes report but really trying to show that there can be a lot of good that comes out of this health-related genetic testing and the fact that we can actually 
reach millions of people and give them results that could help them really take empowering actions for their own health. Do you, do you have people asking for more information or, or begging for information that you guys aren't comfortable, you know, as you said before, 100% confident what you're saying is true? Like, do you feel there's this pressure? Like, tell me if I'm going to die in two years, you know, like, I feel like that's sort of the instant gratification we live in right now. Yes, I mean, we certainly get inquiries. We get inquiries all the time about different types of reports that people are interested in. Um, and yes, there, I mean, obviously, consumer interest is something that we will take into account when we're looking into new reports. And if there is a particular topic, diabetes was actually that type of topic. If there is a topic where people are asking a lot of questions about like, hey, I'd love to know my risk for this particular thing. That is something where we will, you know, look into whether we can develop a report in that space. Are there are there things that are um, like technology barriers right now that um, if we just had um, certain capabilities, if we just had, you know, something um, just sort of waiting for a particular technology or, or, or discovery to, to kind of um, uh, really sort of progress in this area? I mean, I think data is really like that really is the big thing and growing like as databases grow, that does give us more power to be able to put out. I think for us, it really is around like the thinking about things in the modeled report space. So I think traditionally our genetic reports, as I mentioned, have really focused on like these very well characterized, rare variants that are associated with conditions. But as we continue to gather more and more data, both genetic and phenotypic data on people, we can actually start putting that together into these genetic risk scores. And there, you know, you're not necessarily looking at like one or two variants of strong effect, you're looking at a number of variants of weaker effect, plus things like age and sex and, you know, potentially where people live and their ethnicity. Um, and kind of putting that all together to create an overall risk score for a condition. And I think that that is a really exciting new horizon in the genetic space. And it really is something that as the amount of data available grows, our power there is only going to grow as well. Is there anything while you've been working on this that surprised you or, or you know, that just didn't seem that wasn't part of sort of standard stuff. You're like, I can't believe this actually works. Or I can't believe everybody asked for this kind of thing. Yeah, I think the funniest thing for us is just that with every single thing we do, there are new complexities. You know, with regard to our regulatory submissions, we'll start pursuing a clearance for a new type of report. And suddenly, new concepts will come up that we hadn't covered in previous submissions. And we're having these new discussions with the FDA that we hadn't actually expected to have. So there's things in the regulatory space, and then also things in the report space, where, you know, as we're developing new reports and thinking about different conditions, every condition does bring its own set of complexities, and make us think about, you know, what we should be reporting to people, what we shouldn't be reporting to people, what people are actually going to be excited about and interested in. So I think that's what's surprising is just that there is no status quo. We are constantly learning and evolving and just, yeah, the process is different and unique every single time. The other side of that is, I was about to say something, but um, the FDA 
do they have the same sort of growing pains? I mean, this is a field that is changing very rapidly, and government agencies are not known for their um, speed, to put it mildly. But do you run into them sort of discovering new things as you're working with them? Absolutely. I mean, I can't really speak right. as much to you know exactly what is going on in the FDA, but it's certainly, you know, we do run into things where we're talking with them and they get excited about new areas that, you know, we're kind of moving into and they get excited about things that we've brought to them because they are topics that perhaps they've been dis- discussing internally also and are trying to figure out how the best way to regulate these spaces. Um, so, yes, I think it is, you know, being on the forefront of consumer genetics means that we are sort of blazing this new trail and every it is a learning process for everybody involved. On the note of, of the uh, FDA, um, what it, what's the process that you go through in order to get a report cleared? Oh, so our reports, at least our clearances that we have received so far, um, we've had a number of de novo clearances, which essentially that is a type of clearance that says there is no other device like this out on the market. So what we're doing is, you know, de novo, it's new, um, and it's considered to have no predicate. And so those are much more you know, complicated submissions because we really do need to pull together all the information to make the FDA comfortable in the language we're using in the report, our scientific and our clinical validity, and then also the analytical validity of our genotyping platform. Um, so there, yes, it, it requires a great deal of paperwork that we put together and then a lot of discussions back and forth between the agency and 23andMe to make sure that we are both aligned on what that specific genetic report or category of reports should be. Um, we did recently receive our first, uh, I guess it was a clearance, which is a 510K, sorry, I'm trying to remember, 510K is a clearance, yes. Okay, so we did recently receive our first 510K clearance, um, which was for our MUTYH associated polyposis report. And this is the first report where we actually could say there is a predicate on the market. Our predicate in this case was our BRCA1, BRCA2, breast cancer report. Um, and that, you know, it's still, it's still a complicated submission process for the 510K, but it's not an entirely new thing and you can base it a bit on the previous device. So that makes it a little bit easier. So not knowing um, much about this particular space, um, is there, is there like a great white whale type thing um, in this field that that we just don't quite know how to really think about yet, um, but really want to? I think the biggest thing in this space is expanding the relevance of consumer genetics to people who are not European. Um, so despite the fact that Europeans do not make up you know, 90% of the world's population, the vast, vast majority of genetic research has been done on people of European descent. And then specifically within that group, really the vast majority of GWASs have been run on people either from the United States, the United Kingdom, or Iceland. So we're trying to take these, you know, this data from these very limited population sets and actually say whether that applies to people who are African or South Asian or East Asian, 
And it's complicated to do because we actually just don't know that much about the genetics in those populations and how variants might have different penetrance in different populations. So I think that really is the thing. I mean, it's something that 23andMe is very passionate about. I think it's something that the genetics field as a whole is very passionate about is starting to under to starting to increase our understanding of genetics in these populations that traditionally have been underserved. And yeah. Well, it's the same for the research side of it too, right? I mean, like lots of yes. genetic research has been done on that same population and not on other populations. No, exactly. And that's, I mean, the two sort of feed into each other. We really, we need the research to be done on different populations so that then we can take the results of that research and actually be able to provide our genetic results back to people from those populations and be confident in the information that we are providing. Um, so I think the, the two sides are, they feed into each other a great deal. How do we fix that? <laughs> I mean, I know what's magic wants. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. Um, I mean, I think the first step of fixing it is recognizing that there is a problem, which thankfully the field of genetics is doing. Um, 23andMe is very committed to trying to fix this, at least, you know, starting to work with certain populations. So I know that we do have one of the largest cohorts of genotyped and phenotyped participants of African descent. And we actually you know, seek research proposals from scientists to try to leverage this data set and understand more within this population. Um, and I think that hopefully we can only continue to grow that and reach out to more populations over time. Do you foresee a future of, of genetic testing being sort of what everybody does? I mean, right now it's sort of like, oh, it's the Christmas gift you give somebody a 23andMe, you know, kit, or you sort of are doing some family research or, or medical research. But like, do, do you foresee, I mean, obviously you can't speak funny, but do you foresee a, a world where everybody gets their, you know, genetics testing done when they're, you know, five and goes into the pool of, of data or, or as a health tool, if nothing else? I think it's tricky to say. I think there are aspects of genetic testing. You know, if there were a world where you were genetically tested for things at birth, like there's aspects of that that would be really beneficial if you were uh, sort of similar to neonatal testing that happens now. But if you're able to catch certain conditions early in childhood, you can actually provide a much better quality of life for children who have those conditions. On the flip side, I don't know that overall genetic testing for every single condition that's out there at birth is really the way that we want to go. Um, it is going to be interesting to kind of follow this into the future and see where genetic testing goes. I anticipate that it would stay kind of in this recreational space longer than, you know, quickly moving into the everyone gets sequenced at birth type of space. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting what could happen. Thank you very much for your time. Um, that was really interesting. Um, and I've learned a lot. Um, and thanks again. Nope, no problem. It was great talking with you guys today. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts.